Mark chapter 10, we see in 13 to 16 how Jesus received the little children that the disciples really didn't think he ought to be receiving and tried to uh, kind of uh, veer them away from Jesus, but he was indignant with the disciples' attitude toward that. Now we see someone else who comes to Jesus here and the uh, discussion that follows that. So uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words his face fell, and he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking upon them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Alright, so uh, you've got a man running up to Jesus. He seems to be quite eager. What does he want? He's seeking eternal life. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, you're impressed by that to begin with. He's coming to the right source. He's concerned about the right thing. He seems eager. He kneels before him. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, he even calls Jesus good teacher. Now, Jesus responds to that, and this is, uh, I'm not positive I have the right slant on this, but in 18, Jesus responds by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why do you think Jesus said that? What does he mean? He may be asking this man, do you know what you're doing? Do you know that you are ascribing deity to me by saying this. That would be my approach to it. Kind of instructive almost, maybe to the to even those who are around, making a point of what he said. And maybe even making a point to the man, if Jesus is good, then he is God. Maybe you would say that even just objectively, there's really no one who is good, isn't are we told that in some passages, Psalm 14, quoted in Romans 3, and so forth. 
You could also make this point, even if it's not quite the point Jesus is making, considering Jesus' claims, he could not possibly be good if he were not God. Kind of the liar, lunatic, Lord thing. You know, if Jesus claims to be what he claimed to be, and he was just, you know, deceiving, he was just arrogantly asserting that, that he would certainly not be good in any sense of the word. But maybe he's using it more from the standpoint if, you're, if he's really good, which he was, but if he really is, then that's really saying he is God. So maybe he's trying to get the man to stop and reflect upon the true and full meaning of what he said when he called him a good teacher. That has been my approach, for good or for bad. Comments or thoughts about that? Calling that again in verse 20. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> but on the surface, I mean, just it's kind of it's kind of like that um, statement that Jesus makes to his mother uh, at the wedding feast of Cana. You know, woman, what have I to do with you, or something like that? I mean, on the surface, it looks harsh, but I don't I don't get the impression that this is a, a rebuking kind of statement he makes toward this man. As much as, like I think what you said, there's there's more wrapped up in that statement, good than than maybe the surface would indicate. I agree. Yeah, I agree. So Jesus goes on to answer the question, or begin to anyway. What does he tell him about? Commandments. Yeah, you're going to inherit eternal life. Obviously, you got to do what God says. So he says, you know the commandments. So he recites some of them. Well, the man says, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Um, that's pretty encouraging. You know, he's evidently, either he's a old faced liar, or he's been pretty, you know, um, faithful. He's, he's been, been doing the commandments. And it says in verse 21 that Jesus felt a love for him. I assume that means there's something good about him. That Jesus sees some good in him. He, I would assume that means that he wasn't just lying about keeping commandments, that he really is. A man who uh, Jesus felt drawn to. But what does Jesus inform him? One more thing. One thing you like. Keeping the commandments is not enough. We have to submit everything to God. What was the one thing he lacked? His possessions were his God. Yes. And so, if there is something we love more than God, what do we have to do? Give it up. Give it up. Jesus is rather shocking here, don't you think? Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Can you believe Jesus actually said that to somebody? We've read this story before. We know this story. It might not shock us as much as it should. But once you really stop and look at it, do you realize what he say? That's, that's a very um, demanding requirement. Well, how does the man deal with it? He got sad and went away. She's just saying she would if she had to. Okay. Um, 
Yeah. What is? Why was he sad? He had great possessions. Well, a lot. Yeah, but now he wasn't sad because he had great possessions. He's sad because he wasn't. He might have been sad because he wasn't willing to give them up. And he he recognized that's the price. I'm not willing to do that. So he's really sad because. Yes, and considering the choice he's making, he's really sad because he's not going to get the eternal life. I think that's exactly right. You know, he's not willing to pay the price, so he's sad that he's not going to have eternal life. Now, can you imagine someone not being willing to pay any price to get eternal life? Would there be anything that would be too high a price to gain eternal life? Absolutely not. You know, you think about things that you could be asked to give up. I mean, what if it was possessions? Is there anything you own that would be worth more than eternal life? No. Is there anything you do or you like to do that's worth more than eternal life? You know, is there any relationship you've got that's worth more than eternal life? Absolutely not. The truth is, when you compare eternal life with anything you want to look at in this life, eternal life is so much more valuable. So much more valuable. So what does that tell you about this man? Yeah, what were his priorities? Enjoying life, his riches, whatever. Absolutely. The riches mean too much to him. That's too much of a, you know, he just values them too much. He cares about them too much. They are more important to him than what the Lord is. think that shows Jesus properly diagnosed his problem. If there is anything I wouldn't give up for God, I must give it up for God. What do you think? And the problem today isn't that we don't, it's not that we don't know the commandment, it's we don't believe that that that's our problem. Yes. And how, you know, how do you say that? We don't we don't believe that there is anything that's in place of God. We don't have Jesus coming and directly saying, your thingamajig is what's your problem. So we can look at our thingamajig and say, it's not a problem. So we deceive ourselves as to what we truly value. That could be. Um, so how could you tell that you are valuing something more than God? Maybe the time you spend with it. Uh, the time you spend with it. The attention you give to it. 
the uh, way in which you cling to it. And we've got to be honest about that. Because really it is true. I mean, it may be, it may be some sport. Or it may be some relationship. Or, or whatever. But whatever means more to me than God does, the, the right thing to do is give it up. If I don't do that, I'm not a servant of God. Because if God's not number one in my life, then what am I? In biblical terms. If God isn't number one, what would you call me? A lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> Lost, hypocrite. Uh, I, think there's a, I think there's a specific word for that in the Bible. Cool. That too. That too. <laughs> Idolater. Yeah. Isn't that true? Yeah. An idolater is somebody who's got something else in the place of God in their life. Something else more important than God to them. Really, I'm committing idolatry. If there's anything more important than God to me. Jesus knew this man's heart. He, he got it right. He hit the nail on the head. He was too concerned about his possessions. Would one thing keep you out of heaven? Yeah. This one thing he lacked. But that one thing caused him to turn away from Jesus and not follow him because he was not willing to put. Our difficulty is getting someone to see that or getting ourselves to see that. You, know, you can point that out to someone. We'll use someone else as an example because it's impossible for myself. Yeah, right. You, you would think somebody else ought to be able to see it. But if you point out those things, what other things are there? The time you spend with them? The, you know, the, the way you hang on to it, those types of things, but they may come back, well, but that doesn't mean that it's first. That doesn't mean, you know, there's only so much you can say to, to indicate or to try to point out that that's the case. Well, one thing we might say is God knows whether we're willing to admit it or not. If we're not willing to admit it, we're just hurting ourselves. In this case, do you suppose that's why Jesus added the, the other things he said? Looking at the disciples and saying how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? Why does he mention that? I think he's trying to get them to really reflect on their own attitude toward riches. You know, again he said in verse 24, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Just how in the world would you get a camel through the eye of a needle? Now, there's a number of people in you know religious history who have made efforts to either reduce the size of the camel or to <laughs> the eye of the needle to try to make this less uh, of an impossibility. I don't think either of those are necessary uh, or right. I think Jesus meant what he said. I think he's using a rather uh, graphic, uh, maybe exaggerated, and certainly humorous illustration. Can you just imagine, you know, a camel in one long bloody thread from snout to tail getting <laughs> strung through this needle? I mean, that's, you know, the very thought of trying to do that is just hilarious. And uh, I like this. I obviously read this, but, uh, you know, it, it's hard. It, it would be uh, like, 
for us. You know, we don't use camels much. But it, 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 is, it is, well, I don't anyway. It is harder for wealthy Americans to enter the kingdom of God than for Bill Gates to get through the night deposit slot at First National City. You know, that's the idea. We relate to that. He's saying it is so hard for a rich man to go to heaven. Do we believe that? We don't act like it. We don't act like it, do we? Why, why would you say we don't act like it? Give me more and more and more. We sure do enjoy the riches and seem to be eager about pursuing them. And we're okay with attaining them. Yes. If this is the case, then it'd be like, yeah, you know, that inheritance thing, that won't be good for me. That, uh, you know, selling whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, we pursue them like they're good for us. Like that's really going to benefit us in the long term. And we make all kinds of uh, explanations about how it's going to be good for us. I'm going to have money and I'll be able to do X, Y, and Z good thing with it. Yes. And even, and even planning things that could make us independently wealthy where we don't have to work. You know, is, is that a good thing? Say, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into this program and in 10 years I can retire because I'll have money. Yeah, I remember a boy I grew up with who was going to do that in the 10 years he fell away from the Lord. But, um, you know, and here's the other thing maybe that we should couple with that is how many people, how many of us recognize the seriousness of the subject? How many of us see danger in that? You know, and are, are, are actually uh, worried about that. I mean, if Jesus said, you know, I don't know, how hard is it for Americans to enter the kingdom of God? Or for preachers to enter the kingdom of God? Or whatever. I think it would be something where I'd feel like, whoa, this is going to be really tough. I mean, that would kind of scare me. It would kind of make me really think, man, uh, what am I going to do? How am I going to deal with this in a way that, that I can do that? But when we read these things... I don't know that we have that sense of concern. Now, maybe it's that we don't think we're rich. (laughs) You know, when I hear people talk, everybody I hear talk talks about how poor they are. (laughs) I don't have money for this. Oh, yeah. Man. You know, I mean, it's one thing or another or another. You know, I've got, you know, all these expenses. You know, I've got this income issue. i got whatever. You know, taxes, whatever. Um, and, I mean, I just think if we don't recognize ourselves as being rich, we're blind. <laughs> you know, look anywhere you want to look in any era of the world's history. I mean, we have things that weren't even invented, you know, 50 years ago, let alone 500 years ago. <laughs> and, you know, go anywhere you want to in the world just about. Certainly any country that has any appreciable number of inhabitants and whoa we just we look so self-indulgent I would just it just embarrassed the daylights out of me to have some of my Brazilian brothers and sisters come to America I'd be afraid they'd see the way I live now 
you know, I'm saying that at this point just to say, I think we all see ourselves as being rich. You know, I think that's, I think, I think we should take this warning as a warning for us, not just apply it to Bill Gates. I mean, good grief. Uh, you know, I don't assume that even this man had what Bill Gates has. Um, for many of us, maybe not all, but for many of us, we're relatively affluent, even compared to Americans. You know, I think many of us actually, you know, have a pretty comfortable lifestyle, not not like some Americans who perhaps are, you know, eking out an income, you know, a living with, with, with you know, a single parent on a little more than minimum wage and, and things like that. You know, well, many of us, you know, do pretty much what we want. Um, so, think about some practical lessons from that. One, I think, is what we just talked about. We should be a little more wary about this headlong pursuit of wealth. As if the most, as if it was just an, an, an unalloyed, you know, uh, good and blessing. You would always want more money if you could get it. And you'd always want to pursue more if you could. That would, you know, if you had the chance, more money would be better. I think that assumption we ought to question. Would it, not, would it be better for us in terms of going to heaven? I, I don't know. Probably not. I'm not against the concept of let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing that is good, that he might have to give to the one who has need. I don't think it's wrong to want to have to give. I just think that's not what most of us are thinking when we think about, you know, getting more. You know, there may be some people who really... If they thought about, you know, I could, uh, you know, get some, you know, more money, I'm thinking immediately, and that would enable me to help this person and that person and so forth. If we're honest in that, you know, that might not be bad, but for most of us, we're not thinking about that at all. It's just thinking about, wow. And for our kids, what would you want your kids to grow up and be? If they had the choice between two jobs... Would you hope that it really paid a lot? Well, would you hope that they'd be a beggar? No, probably not. I mean, Proverbs 30, give me neither poverty nor wealth. There's kind of some downsides to both of those spiritually. The guy who's in abject poverty, you know, may be tempted to steal. The guy who is rich, probably tempted to be prideful and depend on his riches. So, maybe something moderate, but I think for us, many times we think, the best thing my kids could do would be whatever they'd make the most money at. Well, that's not necessarily true. So I think that's one principle, is just trying to think about, you know, how we value it. <clears throat> and then I think another thing is, think about our security. Because I think that's a big issue with the money. You know, can you imagine being this rich man? What if you'd have gone through with that? How would you feel? Can you imagine selling everything you had, giving it to the poor? What would, what would be your next question? Now what? <laughs> How are you going to eat? Where are you going to sleep? What are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, that would be extremely insecure. Just follow Jesus. Well, he doesn't exactly have anything. 
<laughs> oh, and I've sold it all. I've given it all away. We feel so vulnerable. So I think our riches have made us not depend on God enough. So I think that's an, an issue. We've really got to not not depend on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. You know, I think that's something. We really, if whatever we've got, we've got to be really careful that it does not be what we trust in. I'm, I'm thinking of 1 Timothy 6.17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. We've got to really make sure that we see we're dependent on God. We don't let whatever we have give us a false sense of security. I'll pause there for a moment. Those are a couple of applications I would make. What are some thoughts and comments you have through all this? I think whenever I saw the story, um, it really reminded me of Mark 8, where Jesus talked about denying self. Um, because he uses some of the same language. Um, he talked about, in verse 21 of chapter 10, about, you know, take up your cross and follow me. The same idea is that, you know, even asked in Mark 8, what is slowest one willing to give up their soul um, for something they deserve? I, I guess it's something, again, this is more of a, I guess, a, an example to us, we can see how this works out and see, really see ourselves here as, you know, we're so often so enwrapped with the things of this world that we often forget about, um, you know, carrying our cross. Instead, we put our cross down and get distracted by the things of this world that can really uh, mess our lives up. How hard would it be for us to give up our fill on the blank? See, this is the same invitation that he gave the the disciples to follow him when they did physically. Or yes, yes. You saying, "Drop it and come walk where I walk." Ah, uh, that's what I see. So, do you see it then not applicable to everyone else, or in a different way, or how do you? I mean, is that what? Obviously, we can't follow Jesus physically. We have to follow him in the sense of following his, what we see in him. I see it as, you, you know, it's the command to give up whatever is more important to you than God. Not a blanket command for every person to sell everything they own and give to the poor. However, when we say that, the disturbing thing to me is... As soon as I say that, we automatically assume that means I shouldn't. <laughs> you know? And, I mean, I do think that we need to be more thoughtful about that option than what we are. And maybe, for some of us, there's a middle term, but what, what would you do with a passage like Luke 12? I mean, I recognize there's not the all in Luke 12.33. But have you ever really thought about what he's saying in Luke 12.33? Sell your possessions and give to charity. <laughs> Make yourselves money bells which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven. For no thief comes near, no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
That was just a new sermon. And you see the early Christians doing that. They sold lands and houses. I'm not saying that every early Christian sold every piece of property they had. I don't think they did. I mean, you see Christians met in the houses of brethren in various places. So I don't think there was just a blanket statement that every Christian sold every house they ever had. <coughs> but I see the early Christians as more, as quite willing to do that, as not putting a lot of stock in those things. You know, what with brethren needed, they, they gave them up. You know, I think about this. You know, this is probably a poor application, but it kind of came to my mind. You know, I remember, I, you know, I've been around longer than some of these uh, youngins have. I remember when the uh, Iron Curtain fell, and brethren start going to Eastern Europe. And I think it was Paul Earnhardt I heard, preaching, maybe, you know, probably around 1990, somewhere through there. And really saying, you know, look, suddenly we have an opportunity to go with the gospel where it had not been able to go before. The people need to go, and brethren need to send them. And it may well be that we need to give up things to be able to send them while we've got this opportunity. You know, we may need to sell, you know, our houses or our lands or whatever we have to sell to be able to do that. Now, you know, there was something appealing about that idea. You know, at least until you had to actually get rid of something. You know, you kind of, you know, that's, that's the right spirit. Now, we've got to be willing to put that in practice. You know, and at the very least, Use what we have for the Lord. Hold it lightly. Not put any stock in it. I'll tell you another thing. I'm talking too much. But it, it disturbs me that we can become so self-indulgent. That, you know, there seems to be no limit to what we do. I mean... You know, as long as you got the money, then you build a bigger house and a bigger house and a bigger house and a bigger house, and and you drive a fancier car and you take more elaborate vacations and you get nicer jewelry and you you know do whatever. And I mean, the more you get, then the higher lifestyle you have, the higher lifestyle you have, the higher life. You know, is there? Why are we so possessed by those things? And what about this? You know, I, I'm concerned about the fact that there are so many churches that have become very affluent churches. That the whole mentality of the group is this upwardly mobile lifestyle. What about the people in that group who can't afford that lifestyle, but they want to be included and accepted? And they want to feel like they're a part of that. So they want to drive what we drive. They want to live in what we live in. They want to go out to eat to the restaurants where we go out to. They want to take the trips we take. They want to, whatever. You know, they want to keep up with our affluent lifestyles. You know, among other things, you know, what we do may even be a stumbling block to those who, you know, end up having to do things they really shouldn't do, you know, just to keep up. I don't know where to draw the line. I, I, it wasn't that long ago I was talking with a very good friend of mine. I don't, I mean, I felt bad doing this. But 
he's a really good man. I have great respect for him. And he was showing me his house plans. And I just said, you know, I don't know if I don't know if it's the best thing that we build such a mansion. I don't remember exactly how I said it. It's been a while. But I expressed, you know, concern. It just bothered me. You know, and it was quite something. To his credit, he scaled back the points. Now, I don't know if what I said had anything to do with that. But it's not that those things are wrong. It's that we just seem so... It never seems to occur to us that we could do less. You know, the, the thing you always do is you get all you can and you spend it all for yourself. That, that's the American mentality. Hopefully it's not our mentality. We just gloss over statements like it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's like, oh yeah, that's nice. That, yeah, sure. But our, our actions and, and the way we spend money says we don't believe that. And we believe that true joy comes from having more stuff. And I think it's just evidence of the futile search and attempt to gain some measure of, of joy and it just doesn't happen that way. It doesn't. No, but it yet, doesn't. Sometimes, unfortunately, you have to live X tens of years to figure that out. And you might think about this one, too. You know, we're just kind of making some different applications. What about our tendency to clutch on to what we have as opposed to investing it in the Lord's service? You know, let's say we, you know, are surviving. And, you know, maybe there are brethren in need. Maybe there are people that need rides to gospel meetings in various places that would really encourage them. Or they need me to spend some time and money to do something with them or to help them out in some way. You know, I can think of just tons of applications of that. You know, money we might spend to be hospitable, money certainly in our society, money we might spend on gas for all kinds of stuff that could be really helpful. You know, and so forth. And and what you know, what do we ever think, well man, yeah I could do that and that might help so and so out, but do you realize what that would cost? Now if we're saying, you know, I'd have to rob somebody to do that, well no. But if we're saying, you know, if I did that, you know, I'd have to eat beans and rice for the rest of the month. <laughs> you know, or I'd have to, you know, cut out this whatever. What's wrong with that? You know, sometimes it's not even the possession. It's almost the idea of our financial position. You know, we clutch on to what we have. And we don't want to use it. I think using what we have for the Lord, using it for His people, sometimes giving it, or sometimes applying it, shows that heart that's not attached. That's, you know, whatever I've got, it's the Lord's, you know, however He can use it, wonderful. That ought to be my mentality. It seems that this is, this could be kind of a continuation of the thought 
in 942 through 48. And instead of, if your eye causes you to stumble, it's if your riches cause you to stumble, then throw them out. Get rid of them. It seems to be the same, same kind of thing. Anything we had to give up for the Lord is worth it. Sorry? I think it's kind of interesting you're saying that, that you know, about, you know, you see someone in need, maybe you don't give them the things they need because you're worried about yourself, but kind of get to thinking, you know, more, most of the time I think, well, oh, there's there's far richer people out there that can take care of them, somebody else will do it, um, or else um, <laughs> God will take care of them, which we don't see in our lives, and if we give some some of our wealth up, you know, we have to suffer for a while, we don't, oh, but I've got to have it, but we want to think God will take care of them, but we don't think God can take care of us. I find it humorous that he told him to sell it. It's as if the poor won't have any use for what you have. <laughs> sell your possessions. And then give the money. The other thing, we, we tend Good point. to... <laughs> we tend to uh, placate ourselves by what we do give. Our minimal amount. Well, I give this and I, I give that. Granted, I can still do this and this and this, everything that I want, but I give away something. Yeah, good point. Yeah, you know, that's kind of the American uh, mentality also. You know, we, we give some money, and we feel like that satisfied our monetary responsibilities and even all of our other responsibilities. Took us out of the rich category. Yeah, I don't have to visit the fatherless and the widows I gave to him at the office, you know, whatever. That kind of mentality that, you know, we can do something, and now I'm, I'm good. And that certainly doesn't change our heart about what we have necessarily, which is obviously the key. Which, if you had something else to say. Go ahead. Difference of degree, go ahead. Um, I just... Think that you know when we think of our money as a possession, we're not looking at it the way it needs to be. You know, it's like food being fuel for our body. Money is a tool that we use for good or evil. You know, it's just a tool. That's all it is, and we make it so personal. It's mine. You know, and I will give you some of my money. <laughs> well, yes. no, I'm going to lend you this tool. God loaned it to me, and I'm going to give it to you, and you can use it for good, too. You know, there's just so many, there are ways to look at it that are different than what we've grown up knowing. It can be a very prideful thing for us. Good point. Chris? I, I, I struggle sometimes with our attitude towards who to give it to, who's poor. Do I have to be real particular? Am I, you know... Yeah, I said a lot of qualifications, or just give it to anybody that asks or is poor, or, you know, we have opportunities even now to send it to other countries and, and places, you know, what, what are the restrictions, or are there, or am I using that as an excuse? Well, you know, have you ever thought about this? There's a whole lot of headaches involved in having uh, affluence. <laughs> <laughs> Beggars don't have these discussions. You know? uh, it's it's amazing how much really responsibility that gives us. And um, you know, I think we need to be concerned about our heart 
in giving? Because I think giving, as much as that's something we ought to do, can also be prideful. It's kind of what Anita was touching on. You know, that we want to give so that we are thought highly of, so that we have influence, um, so that we feel like we're being, you know, generous. I think, I think that's one thing. You know, what's our motive? And, and there are times when, you know, rich Americans can give things that our whole attitude is condescending and is attracting attention for ourselves. And, and so I think that I think that may eliminate some things. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, oh, say. I hear about these things. I don't know about many of them directly. Not really any of them directly. But I think about, um, you know, preachers who go to foreign countries who may enjoy raising large amounts of money to take and may make sort of a theatrical display about dispensing it and and may end up being a very important person <laughs> among those people because of that. That wouldn't be right. You know, it's not right for us to even give away our money for some selfish purpose or to, to you know, build ourselves up. So I, I think, you know, it is proper to have some concerns about that. It's proper not to hurt people with our money. You know, that's a tough thing to be wise about. Um, but let me put it in these terms. When you're a parent, should you be prideful and arrogant and enjoy bossing your children around? Well, if I put it in those terms, you'd say no. And some parents are, and they shouldn't be that. Should you have a servant mentality toward your children? Well, again, I think if I put it in those terms, we say yes. Well, okay. So you've got a, um, oh, I don't know, early teenager who doesn't want to clean their room, doesn't want to make their bed, doesn't want to clean the house, doesn't want to do the dishes, doesn't want to help with the laundry. So what should you do? Well, I'm going to be a servant. You know, I don't want to be bossy and arrogant. I'll just do all that. Do you see a fallacy in that? What's the fallacy? They need to be trained. Yeah. It, you know, that's not being loving toward our children because that's hurting their development. It seems really nice. And every once in a while you see parents who are really nice guys toward their children. Mm -hmm. But in reality, they're hurting their children with that. It's, there were times when, a lot of times when, I, I you know, insisted that my children do things I could have easily done. And honestly, it wasn't because I was lazy. It was because I thought they needed to do it. There were some times when it would have been a lot easier to do it myself. <laughs> but I felt like they need that. So there may be times when I wouldn't give something to somebody because I realize they need to do it for themselves. You know, that, that if I give it, it's going to hurt them. 
Now, if I say that because I'm stingy, well, God will condemn us for that. You know, if, if I'm just trying to use that as an excuse. But I don't think it's improper to love wisely and to give with a real desire to help, not just a desire to feel like, well, I've done a great thing and they're going to like me for it. I, I said too much to answer that question. You have examples of that in Brazil. I know you were there, and there are people that are just dirt poor. Wouldn't it be, I mean, wonderful to give them? <laughs> you know, we could give each one of them fifty dollars, and that'd be their, that'd be tripling their salary. In Brazil, not quite, but in a lot of places, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and it's tempting to do that. So maybe it is the motive. Absolutely. Yes. I mean. And the thing that I notice, Brazilians can be very materialistic and greedy also. Brazil is, you know, Brazil is poor compared to us, but Brazil is not poor compared to the real poor countries. You know, Brazil is kind of almost middle class in the world sense. We're on the rich end, and, you know, places like Zimbabwe are on the poor end, and Brazil is kind of in the middle. Uh, but they're a lot poorer than we are. But man, there are a lot of greedy Brazilians and materialistic Brazilians. I see that a lot. And I preach and teach about that. Probably seems hypocritical to them. But it concerns me. You know, I suppose there are a lot of poor people who can be greedy and materialistic. You know, I, I don't know many just super poor people that are eating, you know, three meals a week or whatever. Uh, but they probably could be too. I don't know. Um, so, I mean, I think being careful not to promote wrong attitudes is appropriate. I, I, I would say this also, and this probably is far afield, but we're in a good, good you know, group to say this. You know, people like Gardner Hall and Sewell Hall have been really helpful in some of their writings about dangers of money supporting uh, preachers in foreign countries that there are a lot of bad things that have been done along that line from good people who've done things that have been really detrimental, like um, bringing a lot of preachers from other countries back to the U.S. to study. There's a lot of negatives about that. For one thing, they get used to the affluence of the U.S. For another thing, then they're seen either like that, now you're not really one of us, or they're put on a pedestal, you were trained over there, or like just, um, you know, an American brother going to a country, spending a few weeks there, a couple weeks or whatever, finding some people who look like good people, and wouldn't it be great if they preach, and it wouldn't take very much to support them, and so I'll give them a salary and I'll let them preach. You know, I can get the brethren who do that, well, there's, a, there's, there's so many dangers we need to be really careful about in that. You know, do you really know people if you've been somewhere for a couple of weeks? <laughs> you know, and how, you know, we really have this problem in this country too, but how is it going to look if, you know, there's just American money supporting a whole bunch of people? What if I'm not one of those people who got that money? Either am I going to compete to try to get it the next time around? Am I going to be resentful of those who do? Or am I at least going to think, well, I don't need to evangelize. I'm not the one who got the money. 
You know, there's just, there's some dangers. I don't think it means that we shouldn't help. But I think it means we need to be wise about that. And I see sometimes Americans almost, again, to me it's prideful with the money, almost, here, we'll help you, we'll do this, come on, we'll be the big shots, and we'll do out, do out the money, and, and you all come to us and we'll take care of everything. You know, that's happening, I think, in some, you know, among some brethren, not brethren I would necessarily associate with in Brazil, but, but, and I've heard of it happening in a lot of places. So I think wisdom is important. You know, having it, you know, we pray for it a lot, but I said too much, but other comments? This might be another reason why it's so hard for, like, for, like he says, for a rich people that can be done, because it's like, sort of like a double-edged sword. Like, you can love the money and, uh, like, always, like, strive to get more. Or, on the other side, you can, like, be giving a lot and then just be, like, prideful, because you're, like, you're, like, I'm this good person, I give all the time, I give to people all the time and everything. So how do we give if we give? <coughs> how should we give? So like your left hand and your right hand is Amen. What does that mean? Keep it quiet. That's part of what it means. Don't sound the trumpet and try to get attention for it. What else does it mean? Don't think about it a lot. Yes. Hide it from yourself. Don't make a big deal about it in your own mind. I think the thing to realize is, what if I have money? How did I get it? From God. Yeah. Is it a big deal if I use it for him? He gave it to me. It's kind of like all of our talents and abilities. What if you got a talent or ability to do whatever in the Lord's service? And you use it for that. Well, he gave it to you. <laughs> Why wouldn't you use it for that? We shouldn't, we shouldn't get this idea of, wow, look at me, or just even in our own head. You know, I really am a very generous person. Look at what I do. I can't help but think about the pearl of great price as opposed to this man. If he really had the same attitude, when Jesus told him to go sell, he would have said, what a bargain. I'm glad to do that. And he would have been right. That would be exactly the right thing. So, you know, maybe one of the things we've seen in all this, we just can't put much emphasis on money and material things. They just can't mean much to us. It can't be a big deal for us. You know, it's it it's, it not doesn't bring happiness. It's it's not. It, it's a danger. It's a big danger. Let's be less attached, less focused on it. You know, I mean, I think even. You know, I realized early on, and this I think this is a fair application of this as well for me. Maybe not for everybody. You know, I have a degree in accounting, even though I've never practiced it, and I've been pretty money-oriented, you know, from that and just from kind of my background, whatever. But I realized after a while, you know, my efforts to conserve money can also be almost, well, very much a distraction. Very much, you know, I got to thinking about it too much. Well, how can I do this? How can I do that? You know, and I realized sometimes I just need to forget it. You know, it's just not a big deal. You know, if 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 I spend an extra quarter, you know, or or fifty dollars or whatever, 
you know, because I didn't compare shop every last place that I could have possibly done to make sure I got the best bargain, and then I didn't weasel the guy down to his very... Who cares? Probably is a waste of time for me to do that anyway. You know, for me, at times, it's that, well, you know, it's just money. You know, it's not a big deal. You know, even holding on to it's not a big deal. I, I, that It was helpful to me when I made more of a transition to just not worrying so much about money, getting it, or conserving it. I'm not saying being self-indulgent, obviously. I'm not saying being irresponsible with, with our responsibilities. I'm just saying, why does it make so much difference to us? Forget it, you know? It's interesting that I have to think about this, that, you know, this man, he, he's a lot like us, but also he was ready to do whatever Christ told him to do until he found out it was going to be a sacrifice. <laughs> and then once he found out it was going to hurt him, he was, yeah. you know, well, you know, do not murder, do not steal. You know, those aren't things that maybe not necessarily been much of a sacrifice for him because he never thought of murdering anybody anyway. So it's just something, yeah, that's easy. But it was once it, he knew it was going to hurt him, um, he wasn't he wasn't about to do it. Uh, I think it's a lot of times how we are, you know, okay, I can go to church, and yeah, I can go to church during the week, but it's when i got to go these extra Bible studies during the week and take up my time. Just thinking about God, that's that's just when I draw the line. Excellent. Reminds me, remember what Scott said here that weekend, he said you can follow God in everything that you're okay with. Yes. But if there's, there's one thing that you do it your way, and it's like, yeah, i got one little hang-up. Well, it happens to be the only thing that you disagree with God on, and you do it whose way? Your own way. I heard somebody recently challenged kind of the statement of that we, we need to put God first. And the challenge was it's almost as if we can put God first and then on everything else that we have to deal with, well, we put Him first, so I don't have to deal with Him now. But, you know, the thought was in my family, in my job, in my school, in my whatever... God is actively involved in my, in that part of my life, and I think sometimes you can, people conclude, well, I'll put God first, and then after I've given that piece to Him, every other part, then adds up, and I'll just do what's best for me. I don't think that's always what's meant by the statement, I'll put God first, but that's a good observation. Yeah. What does he say to Peter, who said, we've left everything and followed you? You can go back, plus some persecution, and we have <laughs> life. <laughs> There's so much more God has to give us than what we give up, even in this life. You know, the blessings we receive are much greater than what we give. And it may not come in the same currency, it may not be monetary. But what we give up, we get back. And much more in this life. And yet it won't be a piece of cake with persecutions. And in the age to come eternal life, whatever we give up, it's worth it. Serve the Lord. He's always worth it. You know, and and that's, you know, when you look at it from the standpoint of, of the value of the Lord, then nothing's really a sacrifice. Comments and thoughts.
is his point in what he says there in 30 that it may come back to you in those forms as well? I mean, is that part of it? In other words, if, if you give up these things, you may very well get them right back. If you, if you give monetarily, freely, it may come right back to you. I mean, is that a part of what he's saying? Or is it just contextually he's, he's comparing value? I would say he's almost spiritualizing it. You give up your physical family, you gain a much greater spiritual family. You know, you give up your material possession, you get a much better spiritual land or farm or whatever. That, that'd be my impression from that. You know, you've got passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that strongly emphasize the concept that the more you give, the more you'll get. But it's very clear in that passage, the more you give, the more you get to give. It's always, they, it, that passage often perverted to almost make it a selfish thing. You know, you give more and that way you'll have more and be able to raise your lifestyle. But it's always in that you'll have an abundance for every good deed. Second Corinthians 9 verses 8 through 11 particularly. So I think there may be some senses in which, yes, the more you give, the more you'll get. But the more you'll get to give. You know, it's kind of like investing anything in the Lord's service. The more we invest, then the more the Lord will give us to invest. Is there significance that in verse 29 he includes uh, leaving father, but in verse 30 it doesn't talk about gaining fathers? It might be. There might be. I mean, you know, we might think of gaining our heavenly father. Maybe that's the reason he wouldn't do that. Although... Paul spoke of, you know, being a father to the Corinthians. So. The thing that's been coming to my mind through this discussion is just good stewardship. You know, it's all on, it, it all belongs to God. And, if, you know, if you're a good steward, you get more to manage for him. And... When you see it that way, then you realize these aren't our things, they're the Lord's. And that changes our whole perspective. What in the world does 31 mean? Well... You know, to me, in the context, it'd be the top dog is at the bottom, and the guys who are lowly and have nothing, they're the ones who'll be at the top. It's kind of a financial pecking order. Yeah, and just, you know, almost, wouldn't this almost be the key statement of the chapter? Who ended up being first? The little children and the blind beggar. Who ended up being last? <laughs> You know, the rich ruler and James and John. <laughs> you know, it's almost like the ones who are exalted now will be abased, and the ones who are abased now will be exalted. That's the way I see it. So God inverts the way things look. I wonder what was Peter's motivation when he asked the question, or when he made a comment. <laughs> Behold, we've left everything. You know, Jesus is going on about how great that is, and Peter speaks right up. Wow, we've left everything. 
where does that put us? <laughs> yeah, and, and at the very least, perhaps he's trying to, uh, you know, say we're not we're not among these wealthy people who wouldn't enter the kingdom of God. We've given it all. <laughs> it, it, it does sort of what you're talking about: who's first and who's last. That seems to set up almost a chiasm in the chapter because you've got the children, the rich man, that statement, uh, James and John, and then the blind beggar. So yes. you've got that same, so that the verses 31 through 34 maybe are the center of it. Mm-hmm. Good point. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable way to look at this. Definitely. Other comments? Can I take a little different slant? Um, back in the discussion, like in verse 19, when asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, Jesus goes to the commandments. I just hear so much today about our relationship with God is not about keeping commandments. But yet, Jesus seems to say here that while that's not the whole story, it is a part of it. Can you comment on that, Sam? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we would see that the basic principle is to love God and to love our neighbors ourselves. And that if you love God and you love your neighbors yourself, then you fulfilled the whole law. But are we trustworthy in determining what is loving God or loving our neighbors ourselves? You know, we need God's orientations and his commandments so that we will properly apply that and to keep us honest. So, I mean, man, you look at the New Testament. There is a lot about obedience. There's a lot about commandments. Look at 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, for example. Um... You know, it's a lot about just doing what he says. That is a that's a key thing. And, you know, so often we may prefer not to have that so that we can kind of do what we want to and still feel like, well, I've still got, you know, this whatever. But I guess I could take that too far as well. If, if we just become people who want to keep commandments in and of themselves and not develop the relationship with God. Not do it because we love God and love our neighbor, just so we can earn brownie points. So is keeping commandments synonymous with being legalistic? No, not at all. A lot of people say it is. A legalist might keep some might keep commandments, but someone who loves God keeps commandments also for a different reason. You know. If I love God, then I want to please Him. I want to know what He says, and I want to follow it because I really care about it. Now, a legalist might keep some commandments, although he'll probably try to find every loophole he can. But he'll keep some commandments so that he can earn his brownie points and so he can feel good about himself and brag. You know, both keep some commandments, although I think the man who loves God will do a much better job of that. But they do it from a totally different motivation. There's so much to be said about that. Galatians 5 is a good passage to look at from one, one aspect of that. But, but you know, 
trying to understand the difference between somebody who's just trying to be good enough so they can save themselves versus the person who loves God and seeks to please Him. I mean, between those two, there's a huge gulf, even though they both may be concerned about some commandments. And it really helped, you know, for me, you know, I grew up with, all, really, I think, some legalistic concepts in my head. And as I studied, I realized this is wrong. And then I saw some things. You know, it's like, I don't want that. And people like Paul Earnhardt and others helped me a lot when I was young to see that, you know, someone who loves God also is very concerned about obeying Him. Not trying to earn His salvation, or not trying to become self-righteous, but out of love, really wanting to please Him. That really helped me to keep my balance, because sometimes you see one thing that's wrong, you want to throw out everything. And we've got to, we've got to be biblically balanced. Alright, well, I didn't intend to uh, spend all afternoon on uh, one section, but I appreciate your comments and your listening to mine as well. Hopefully this can help us. I, we probably need this as well, much as we do everything. So, it was a really good discussion. I appreciate that. Um, you know I won't be here next week. And then start